stage. It's been a minute. We've been busy cleaning all the couches, deep clean, getting hand sanitizer collected. But now we've we've got the backstage area all pristine. We're socially distanced, and we're ready to have a fun conversation with Owen Bickford. Owen, first of all, thanks for coming on backstage with me. Yes, I'm wearing my gloves, my mask. I'm ready to go. Yes, we are clean and clear and ready to rock. We're here to talk about Elixir again, um, specifically about our software that runs changeall.com and really how you became a contributor here recently and wrote a blog post for us. You said you're a first-time listener, long-time listener, first-time caller, maybe. Right, right. Let us know how you found the changelog and what you listened to and then what compelled you to hop in and get involved. Right, so... uh so yeah, well, thanks for having me on. I uh, yeah, this was really so. This was one of the first. Well, this is probably the biggest open source contribution I've made. Oh really? In history for for me. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I've made a couple of like one or two line you know changes to repos here and there. Uh, before this, my my biggest uh, change was like four lines or four characters on the Phoenix uh, repo. Uh, just adding a a line to the. Uh, webpack config, I think. Okay. So that was fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so uh, I've, I've been listening to Changelog for a few years now. I don't know exactly when I started, but uh, my previous day job, I was in customer service. So I listened to a lot of podcasts. And a few years ago, I'd, you know, we'll go back into the history a little bit more. But basically, I wanted to, I knew I wanted to, I was interested or I wanted to pursue software development as a career. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I started just tracking down uh, podcasts. And I'd already listened to a lot of podcasts every day. Uh, so I uh, started digging up uh, programming podcasts or anything that said developer or software or something in the title. Or, yeah. you know, you do a search and whatever comes up, I, I would add just about anything. Give it a listen at least. So, so yeah, I've been listening to Changelog for probably at least three years and that's back when you were first getting into software then? Like three years ago? Well, so, yeah, we'll rewind a little bit. First of all, I, so I work at Comcast. I'm not here on behalf of the the company or anything. But, uh, uh, yeah, so my history is uh, I've, I've worked a lot of different jobs. Didn't go to college for software engineering or anything. Yeah. Um, I've done everything from, like, my first job was AM radio. <laughs> Worked in fast food and retail, kind of wound up in customer service, and uh, and then fast forward to October of last year, I actually made it in as a full time developer at Comcast. So wow, pretty pretty happy where I'm at now. Uh, but self taught then. Uh, so my first introduction to programming was back in eighth grade. This would have been 1997, 98. Okay. Uh, our little, uh, so I went to a kind of a small town high school. Uh, we had a kind of a middle school newspaper thing and the HTML, HTML4 was brand new at the time. Mm. So our uh, middle school newspaper teacher was, I guess I just read the book over the summer and was getting everyone up to speed on HTML and, you know, laying out your website with the frames, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You have your uh, header frame, your menu frame on the side, and then your content frame in the off to the right. So that's where I started. Uh, just kind of handwriting HTML files for uh, you know 
I guess what would what you'd think of as a post or an article now. Right. You'd go in and just type everything right there in the HTML files. I don't think we had an IDE back then. It was all probably Notepad. So, guy, at least rock Notepad plus plus or something. <laughs> uh, in public school, I don't, I don't know if there, if it was licensing or if no one knew that it existed. I don't yeah. know. We were using a Windows Notepad to do to do everything. I think so. Uh, and then we probably graduated to Dreamweaver at some point. Yeah. Right. So uh, then eventually, uh, I think the next step for me was back in in the MySpace days. Uh, kind of the amazing thing there was that you could customize your uh, profile with CSS. Oh, yeah. And uh, so you could just dump in CSS and you could kind of dig around the page and find what, you know, IDs and classes on elements and stuff and turn them off or hide them or, or do all kinds of crazy stuff you can't do on sites anymore. Right. Or like you can do it yourself in the browser, but, you know, no one gives you like a CSS box you can just drop stuff into. Somebody should bring that back, don't you think? You can do it in like, of course, CSS tricks in your profile and, and stuff like that or uh, code pen. Yeah. But not in like your Facebook like profile. They're not letting you anywhere near the Facebook design no. on your profile. So that was kind of the the next uh, big step for me. And then, really, like I had uh, kind of an eye for like program or application design. I've always had you know complaints about the way things were designed or the way they worked and all mm-hmm. that. But I, anytime I would try to uh, learn programming, you know, like try to learn Android development or anything like that, it all went straight over my head, mm. <laughs> you know, because I didn't really understand the very fundamental stuff of, you know, what's a string. Right. Variables. That, you know, it's not like a, you know, you know, physical piece of string, <laughs> all that stuff. So I would get kind of lost trying to understand those words and the vocabulary. But uh, anyway, eventually, I think when I started learning JavaScript, that was actually my first programming language if you can call javascript is it a programming language i think you can call javascript a programming language yeah okay yeah it's it's got its problems but it's still it's still there so uh yeah so i i started learning that uh, taking over a project from someone uh a few years ago and then that would have been around probably 2015 so that's where the kind of the bigger rabbit hole started you know mm-hmm. learning uh i think starting with uh, jQuery, uh, finding elements and manipulating with uh, jQuery. And then by 2015, 2016, you know, ES6 or ES2015 at the time was already kind of hot off the presses. So there was a lot of content coming out about how to how to do things with that and how it's better and how you could clean up your code and all this. So yeah, I wrote a lot of bad code, but was learning kind of Java, or jQuery to get started, learning ES6 to kind of improve on things a little bit. And then uh, I started learning React because it seemed like that would be the thing to do. You know, just uh, there was a lot of content. So yeah, there sure basically is. my learning is based on like what's available on YouTube what you can learn. and yeah. articles that are available online. What are you writing at Comcast? Uh, so the department I'm in, um, it's uh, PHP. Okay. Uh, for the most part, so. So why are you inter- How you got interested in Elixir then? This is a so this is an interesting question. So I think because I was trying to figure out what immutable data meant, this okay. was something that you would hear from Dan Abramoff and sometimes in these React talks. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, data is mutable. You can't, you know, it's functional programming. I was trying to understand what that meant. So I started doing search on uh, searches on that and Elixir started popping up. So I would watch talks about Elixir. Uh, I've watched hours and hours and hours of talks, <laughs> way more watching than actual actual coding. But uh, so I, I was really impressed with the talks and everything they were saying made sense. It was hard for me to actually jump in and, and write code. I didn't understand anything about modules or or uh, kind of the bigger arc, uh, application design because it's, it's pretty different from like a traditional kind of JavaScript application, mm-hmm. uh, at least compared to what I was writing. So I kind of acknowledged Elixir, thought that it was really interesting, uh, but the docs were way over my head and uh, the documentation. And uh, so I just kind of put a pin in it and then kept on. I decided to, instead of trying to learn you know, three or four different languages at once. I figured I'd focus on JavaScript, try to get at least the kind of the client side JavaScript down. So, uh, cause most of what I was doing was, uh, kind of, uh, kind of layout with HTML, CSS, interactivity with JavaScript and, and that kind of thing. So not, not a whole lot of server side JavaScript at that point. So, so yeah, anyway, once I get that kind of, I wouldn't say master, but once I, I got a lot more comfortable with JavaScript and the fundamental, uh, you know, data types and all that kind of stuff, and the concepts of programming, mm-hmm. then I started coming back to Elixir. The documentation started making a lot more sense, uh, and then the kind of the challenges that people would talk about with other languages that they were being that were being addressed with Elixir, mm-hmm. uh, that started to make a little bit more sense as well. And uh, so. So yeah, that's kind of how I got into Elixir, the the long version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So and so it also kind of explains why you suffered through my YouTube video because you just consume hours and hours of programming content on YouTube, I guess. <laughs> All right, the best way to to not get anything done is just fire up YouTube and and just go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> that's funny because I never turn to YouTube for that kind of stuff. Like yeah. Maybe it's well. I'll say it's a generational thing, but I think we're we're near the same age. I, mm. I I just feel like it's the last place I go to learn programming things or explore development concepts because I just feel like everything's so long. Like everything's a commitment. <laughs> I can scan a blog post, but scanning uh-huh. a YouTube video. I don't know. Do you just sit and watch the entire thing, or do you scan? How do you consume YouTube? So it depends. I've gotten a little bit pickier. Um, so these, so a lot of the Elixir content that I've watched is talks, you know, from ElixirConf, mm-hmm. Lone Star, um, you know, all the different international conferences they have. So that was always really interesting, and uh, you could even run Elixir on a like a Raspberry Pi or something, and and you know, turn off LEDs and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Seemed really interesting. So uh, I mean, like I've dabbled a little bit in Python and and. Uh, and things on the Raspberry Pi as well. But as far as like uh, the YouTube stuff, so for me, at least up to this point, the, the thing that's made more sense is uh, documentation. Sometimes it's hard to kind of read and kind of actually sink in. Mm-hmm. So if I'm trying to learn a kind of a new concept, that uh, you know, I um, can't think of an example, but there's something that's kind of going over my head with documentation or the written, uh, the written words, then I'll... I'll 
look it up on YouTube or if I'm just trying to kill time and I don't have anything to do, that's, that's where I'll, yeah. you know, fire up some YouTube content. If I've already finished out my, you know, hours of podcast for the day. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so, so yeah, I, I, I've listened to a lot of the, uh, Jose's talks and, uh, some of the core team members. Mm-hmm. I think the funny thing with those talks is you can kind of, it's really, it's really interesting how like some people just really have like some kind of innate ability to present and then everyone else is just an engineer. Like they're really, really smart. Right. And they know what they're talking about, but making it interesting is a wholly entirely different uh, skill set. Yeah. Different skill set. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Jose so, makes everything interesting. If, if for no other reason that his excitement level is contagious, like he, right. He's so into what he's doing, and uh, it just gets you into it. At least it does me. So the people that are really good at their talks are the ones who tell it, who tell a story. Mm-hmm. You have some kind of arc. You're not just talking about this package, and you know, you know, I don't know how you how you made the package or the, the lines of code that are involved. You know, it's right. good to see sometimes, but now you can how you can do things. But if you don't wrap it up in a story, it and you don't kind of keep your if you don't have kind of a dynamic presentation in some way then then uh and i think this is just a kind of a mental trick because i think everyone maybe has it has in, in their mind that, that they sound really interesting or they sound like or they feel like they're really boring so they kind of get right. in this headspace but but i uh, but yeah you can, you can whether it's entertaining or not you can still learn a whole lot of stuff from those uh, talks and that's right. where people kind of bring up uh kind of new ideas or new approaches to solving problems that have already been solved in the past. Um, mm-hmm. So. Well, I'll be interested to hear some of your thoughts on some of the stuff that we're doing on YouTube. We're just dabbling at this point. Um, you know, we've always been audio and written mm-hmm. content and we've had, uh, we had a changelog films division where we were going real kind of pro style, like produced film video we did some stuff at conferences kind of like mini docs uh, or something yeah exactly um it was just a big production and we weren't very good at it because we were just getting started and it was difficult to sell the concepts to potential sponsors and people who, to get involved so we've always kind of just sidelined that um we see that there's a lot of people like yourself who are on youtube you know and they are looking for developer stuff like they want to learn they want to be entertained and so there's a huge obviously youtube has a or the the biggest audience right now and in, in content especially in video mm-hmm. content of course um i know spotify is trying to get into that game as they're moving into podcasting but they're also like slightly going to be moving into video which would be interesting to see if they can swipe away some of that that youtube audience but anyways it's a little bit of escapism too i mean May of 2020, you know, sure. the news isn't exactly appealing at the moment. So, you yeah. know, having having something else to spend your time on and put your brain on is, yeah. is uh, it's worthwhile. Yeah, so we've been dabbling, and you've seen uh, a little bit of what we've been doing. I've, I've been trying to think of, like, different styles of content we can put on YouTube. Mm-hmm. I come up with a few different, like, what I call series or types of things. The one that you were watching was a jam session, I think, which is really kind of a a free form, long, long form, exactly what it sounds like. Like I've never done this before. Let's try it out. Let's mm-hmm. go on a jam session and, you know, turn on some music and code. Um, 
which is kind of the easiest thing to do in video. And then we, I have another series called Kick in the Tires, which is really kind of supposed to be like a an intro to a tool or to a concept, especially relating it back to things that we have on the show. Mm-hmm. So I did one for Algo VPN after we had the Algo VPN creator on the change log. And so there's a nice little back and forth there. And I'm trying to keep those like five or 10 minutes. Um, I can't remember which one that you watched. Was it the uh, live jam session using jam session? Phoenix Live View to build a collaborative? You were going to build the sketch. This, uh, that's right. This was it. The scratch pad. Scratch pad for our that's show notes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. A collaborative scratch pad like Google Docs. Um, so I did another one recently, which was maybe twenty minutes, thirty minutes, which was like a kick in the tires on Phoenix Live dashboard. Um, and then we have we're posting clips from our shows on YouTube, which are like you know sixty seconds, ninety seconds, just mm-hmm. to try to get some some people you know exposed to the podcast that we have. Um, but we haven't dove fully into any of these things. I'm just curious, what kind of stuff do you like? Like what kind of YouTube videos are right. really really catch your eye, or you're like gonna watch those every time? So I actually got some really good perspective on this recently because uh, I've been <laughs> getting my husband to learn Elixir and uh, we're doing flashcards, you know, got him copies of some books and stuff. Yeah. And he's a little bit more sponge-like than me, so it, he gets things a lot faster. <laughs> Picking up faster than you did? Yeah. So uh, and I guess it helps. He, he already went through maybe a Swift course, learning how to do some things with, with Swift. So that was a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so... We have different preferences, so I think people that are watching your videos are going to want different things. Yeah. Uh, so a variety is probably good, you know, as long as it's as long as it's consistent. Um, so some people really like a, a short video. Like yeah. The one I watched today was from Chris McCord showing how to make a Twitter clone in 17, 18 minutes or something, and and even if I'm not typing along with them. Uh, it was just good. Like that, that's something I could show to someone else if I wanted mm-hmm. to kind of sell them on Elixir and Phoenix. It's like, yeah. look, this isn't going to take all day for you to kind of see the benefits of what's happening here. Uh, and also, if I just want to get an idea of kind of how it's done, then I can watch that and kind of get it over with real fast and start either <laughs> moving on to the next video or actually start writing some code. Right. Uh, but I also, and I, I know that some developers, and this is also something that's helped me personally, is. Uh, watching people kind of fumble around and kind of do things the wrong way a few times, come back and fix their mistakes and stuff like that. Yeah. And, and I've heard other people get feedback that that's really good as well. So, so, so it's yeah. It's a balance I mean, of like how polished should it be versus how realistic should it be also, right? Right. So you're trying to shoot for like not too long, but also not so perfect that it's obvious that like that's not how I code. You know, it's like putting on a facade. Right. I don't, so, I don't think you have really one audience. I think you have two or three audiences. You have people that want like, just give me the bite-sized stuff. Right. You have people who want to kill an hour or two of just, you know, you shooting the breeze with somebody. Right. And then people who will listen to whatever. I don't know. Maybe that's why some of the variety ideas I have are maybe good if I can execute on them. Another style that I want to do is called, I call it code review, which is where I'm basically a noob looking at an open source piece of software with the, with the creator of the software in a, in a, a shared video. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like they're walking me through code 
I'm the person who's the neophyte and I'm asking questions and they're explaining like why they made that decision or how this thing works top to bottom. Um, that's another idea. I haven't tried that one yet, but that's like on my list of, of video styles to try. I haven't seen too much of that on YouTube where you kind of have a, it's not like pair programming, but it's like a, it's like a walkthrough with an expert and then with a, a non-expert who is a developer. So I know the kind of questions to ask. Hmm. What are you getting enough for too many uh, contributions to the changelog repos? Um, I was like, so the changelog is a weird open source project. Like we're not, we're not open source so that we can be like a community built platform. Mm-hmm. We're open source because we love open source and we like to do everything in the open. And because, especially when we first wrote the CMS, there was no prominent, you know, production grade Elixir Phoenix apps that people could go to and either use as a reference or learn. So you watched that or you listened to the episode with Nick Janatakis. He's built his entire video platform basically by looking at our code. Right. And he's Copied contributed a couple files. <laughs> yeah. And he's. Right. You know, he's in our Slack and he gives me tips like, hey, did you know you got a little security vulnerability here? So, and then I go and fix it, you know. Um, that's kind of why we're open source. So I love the contributions. But you're we not looking our, for like a stream of PRs, basically. No, not really. Okay. I mean, I would accept a stream of PRs, especially if they're good ideas. But, you know, we kind of have our own roadmap. We know what we want to do. This platform's pretty stable. So we're not trying to build like a movement around changelog.com's source code. That being said, like anytime somebody comes in and makes my life better or easier, like you did, totally, <laughs> well, totally appreciate that, and we'll accept those uh, undoubtedly. Because so the the so the one thing that kind of the idea that that I was having when you were kind of describing your video mm-hmm. strategy is, uh, you know, if you're trying to, if let's say you you did want more. Uh, pull requests contributions, on, yeah. Uh, yeah, contributions on changelog, then maybe you would have like a, a playlist or a feed on changelog YouTube where like you, I mean, we're talking about a PR today, but like, yeah, you know, maybe you ask everyone who, you know, whose PR gets merged if they want to like talk about their PR on a, right. on a video, a video. or something. Similar yeah. to what I did with you with a podcast, but do it with a video. Yeah. Like where you kind that, of go over the code, you know, in the video and stuff like that. Yeah. That would definitely incentivize uh, contributions, I believe. Because coding videos are uh, are fun to watch. <laughs> they are, uh, especially you if, like you know, when you learn something. Time. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, coding yeah. videos are fun, but uh, yeah. So that was just a just a common idea as far as if you're looking for content yeah. to kind of dump into YouTube, it yeah. would kind of build a relationship between the, the repos and your channel. Yeah, totally. Across I think that's a great idea. That was a great idea. Um, that reminds me of another style I want to try, which I call PRs Welcome. I like to just name things and then never never create them, uh, which is kind of a series where I'm going around and doing like somewhat random, similar to what you did, open source contributions on people's repos and videoing that, um, like the process of finding a thing, you know, cloning it, giving it a shot, maybe like picking an issue and going through a pull request flow obviously i'd have to like shoot it and you know i'd have to like maybe experience the full thing it takes a few days sometimes right to get everything through Mm -hmm. i have to cut that up and edit it and stuff but it'd be kind of cool to just 
document some open source contributions um, as well. So I like those ideas. Let's talk about what happened. So I had a video yeah. jam session and I'm, I'm coding up some Phoenix live view stuff, which is requiring me to change my mix dependencies, include, <laughs> change some uh, commonly used files like my endpoints or my application.x and uh, my router and stuff like that. And because I'm on this little 13 inch MacBook Pro and I've got multiple monitors going and I have screen flow recording my machine and I have uh, Elixir doing its thing and I probably have other software running as well that I can't think of right now. Every time I save a file and Elixir needs to recompile, it's it's dog slow. My computer just dogs down. Mm-hmm. Which is which doesn't make for a very good video, does it? <laughs> oh, I want to scrub this video if if our feed gets cut off. I'm sorry, I'm just scrubbing. So I wanted to check something here. Okay, in that video, but uh, yeah. So I'm just like, as I record this video, I have all these t- moments where basically I'm just waiting for my for my Elixir app to to recompile, which was painful. And I'm, I'm talking about how it's painful on the on the episode, on the video. Um. And you must have suffered through it alongside me because then you open up an issue a day or two later on our uh, GitHub repo saying basically, yeah, that was painful. We should fix this. <laughs> <laughs> in a nutshell, yeah. Yeah, in a nutshell. So <laughs> what was that from your perspective? Was it like, hey, here's a great opportunity to do some open source or uh, so, I would like to keep so, yeah. watching these videos, but I can't, I can't suffer through this again? What were you thinking? <laughs> Well, I wasn't really complaining that way, but I know you weren't. I was just like, okay, I see that every time you would save a file in the in the terminal when you would hit recompile or whenever you would uh, uh, restart the application, it would have to recompile 220 files. Yes, which seemed a little bit excessive to me. I hadn't ever looked at the changelog repo before that, but I was mm-hmm. like, I've read a couple of articles recently that I think have to do with this particular problem, and. Uh, and I wonder if I can actually go in and figure out, you know, what the hell's going on, right? <laughs> and uh, how to actually fix it, based on those articles. Yeah, so, so. it was kind of just a coincidence, so to speak, that uh, yeah. that you had read some stuff specifically. All timing was just lining up perfectly. Yeah, dealing with this issue, which I had not read these articles, I didn't know about this, and uh, it turns out that there's quite a big difference in module dependencies between when you depending on if you use import or if you use aliases right so how, how good are you at describing that situation because you're probably I, better than I, me at this point i've read these things a few times <laughs> so i will try to be correct and then if i'm incorrect there are experts online yes there are well so first question i had before i forget uh so is that is that a, that's a laptop is it a dual core quad core do you yeah. remember yeah, good question. I can just do about this Mac right quick. Um, it's a 13-inch MacBook Pro 2017. It is a 3.1 gigahertz dual-core Intel Core i5, oh, which okay. is a pretty weak machine. In fact, Zoom won't even let me do the virtual backgrounds because you have to have an i7 mm-hmm. at least. Mm-hmm. Like, so lame. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's not very beefy, but it's a 2017 MacBook Pro. So kind of the excellent thing about Elixir is it builds on Erlang. 
Mm-hmm. And the compiler can take advantage of whatever cores you have on your machine and whatever threads, if it's multi-threaded. So uh, while the while Elixir doesn't do multi-threading internally per se, like it can, the compiler can use all the threads that are available mm-hmm. on your computer. So it with the dual core, you're really constrained. So you're waiting longer for each of these files to to compile. I just built a Linux machine for the first time. It's a it's a eight core Ryzen, and so it it wasn't really suffering quite as much with those two hundred twenty files. Yeah, <laughs> it would take a couple of seconds, but I could see in the video it would take you know several seconds. Yeah, and then thirty the, the, seconds. Yeah, the problem with that is that at the time that you start to compile, you know what what your next step is. Yeah, but then during that thirty seconds, forty seconds, however long it is. Some other idea pops in. Oh, I need to also right uh, check this other thing. Or I gotta you pop open you know, a new tab, then you forget that it was actually compiling. Then you're like, oh right. yeah, I should go back and look at it. Yeah, it just it ruins your all flow. that context switching is just just you know it's painful. Makes it yeah hard to come back. To, you know, it makes it hard to make progress. Yes, on your application. So, so these articles that I read were uh, one of them was from uh, one of the uh, Elixir contributors, uh, Voitech. Mock, I think, and I have completely forgot the other guy's uh, name, but uh, and and there actually have been some articles even a few years ago addressing the same thing, but uh, these were, there were some fresh articles that I'd seen from the so the kind of I guess the primary one would be from the dash dash bit uh, blog, so it's the I think it's the new startup from kind of some of the Elixir core team members. Yeah, so Platformer yeah. Tech got aqua hired. Right. And so Jose, Valim, and a few others from the core team started Dashbit to do Elixir consulting and other things underneath right. that entity. Mm-hmm. And they have their own blog now. And really, those are some of the best articles you can get because they're coming from the core team and some contributors who aren't in the core team, but they all like they know the ins and outs of the compiler. And, and they're also really good at writing so that it's not super dry. Right. And, uh, but it's not, there's not a lot of extra metaphors and, and things like that. So it's focused, but, you know, written for humans. Uh, so anyway, so I see this video. You're trying to get, you know, Live View into your head. Was Live View already in the application or were you kind of adding it for the first time? I was adding it for the first time. Yeah. Okay. So there, there was, you know, con the configuration stuff that was taking a, a while to work out. That's just right. What happens when you're trying to bring something in uh, for the first time? But uh, I think by you know at some point you had you had finished all the configuration, but whenever you would uh, you know write something to a file, it would take forever for the application to recompile. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, uh, so I jump in to the repo and I, I just looked to see if there had been any kind of mention of this and issues or anything like that. I didn't see anything happening or any movement. With that, so I just opened an issue, uh, and uh, and uh, just because I wanted to make sure before I started chipping away at the code and forking it and all this other stuff, I wanted to make sure that uh, that someone wasn't already working on it, and that you know this would be something worthwhile to right. to to take a shot at. So 
So yeah, you responded. You were great. You said, yeah, that would be Plus great. Plus you want to see if we're nice too, right? Like <laughs> you start contributing to open source project and the people are jerks. You're like, I'm out of here. Like, I'm not going to waste my time with these people. I mean, that's right. me. I'll, I'll, I'll test the waters. You know, is this, is this a, are these people kind to their, to their randos who show up in their issues or not? Yeah. How prickly is this particular organization? <laughs> exactly. Because engineers can be prickly for sure. <laughs> well, I'm glad we didn't scare you away. No, not at all. Uh, I'm actually pulling up. Is that issue still open? Let's see. Yep. Okay. So this was issue number 314 on that uh, changelog.com repo. So uh, let's see. So yeah, w once you kind of acknowledged that this was something to, to look at, I at this point I had still had no idea what I was actually going to have to do to fix the problem. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, and I'd read these two articles and I started kind of working on it after a, f a few days um, and kind of struggling with, did I bite off more than I can chew? Am I the right person to do, to do this? <laughs> Should I have just done this and then asked, you know, and then pushed it, you know, after the fact? Mm -hmm. Why am I doing this in public? So, uh, so anyway, so I kind of sort through all that internal stuff and start, you know, kind of coordinating with people. And then I started seeing uh, interest from uh, from other people as well. So you had commented a couple times. We got Nick who commented. Mm -hmm. And then I had kind of, I was kind of keeping track of things I was running into just because I knew that if I would put it at least in a comment, someone would, would be watching and have something to, to say about it. So because uh, I was trying, at first I started with regex, regular expressions. I was like, I'm just going to go in, I'm going to find all the modules that are being imported, I'm going to convert those to aliases and then figure out, you know, throughout the rest of the code where those functions are. And just, that is the kind of the worst possible, that's like just going in and manually updating every individual one manually almost. Yeah, It's just, the application, especially changelogs application is sufficiently complex that that yeah. just won't work it's like uh it has surface area you know like right. it's not complex in terms of conceptually complex there's not a lot of very advanced things at play but it, you might even call it sprawling in its uh in the code base like there's just lots of files there's lots of areas if you're you know, i have shared helpers and i use them all around right. the place you know i'm going to use them they're shared uh, they're, they're they're there to help me, and so yeah, there's just lots of files, lots of code to coverage, and you can you can get away with using regular expressions uh, to update module names and things like that, right? Uh, but this was a whole different kind of uh, beast. <laughs> so fortunately for everybody, uh, Voitech, I guess had been alerted to this and jumped in. He actually mentioned that he had written the article, which was great to see. And that he had written another article subsequently that I had either overlooked or forgotten about or whatever. So uh, not only did he mention the newer article, uh, but he pointed out that that article had a uh, script that he had created to automatically go through and convert these things to aliases. He uh, pushed a pull request where he made some changes and reduced a few of those uh, import dependencies. I guess this would be the point where you want to maybe explain what an import cross cross module import dependency is. So yes, the 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 whole problem here is that whenever you import, uh, 
whenever you import a module in Elixir, uh, it kind of brings in all of the functions and macros. I think I think the macros come in as well, but it imports at least all the functions into that kind of the target uh, module right. that you're importing into. Uh, so then uh, whenever you make a change to that kind of that parent module, it has to recompile all of the kind of children modules that are, uh, you know, those functions need to be updated at the that point. Ones. So, right. Right. And, and you can specify like, I'm going to import this module, but only give me these functions. You know, there's, there's right. commands and there's ways you can specify how that works. But if you just say import changelog.helpers, you're going to get every function in that module imported as a bare function name that you can call without any reference inside of the importing function. And that then links those two at compile time. And right. so there you have a compile time. Dependent. So on a, on a new project, uh, that can be appealing because you don't have to type out the full module name right. to use a function. You just type the function name itself. Uh, but once your application grows a little bit, uh, especially once you get into, you know, dozens and dozens of modules, that means that you've got all these kind of cross-module dependencies, and then you save a file, and then there's all these other modules that have to be recompiled so that everything is kind of basically in, uh, synchronized. And you end up with 220 files to recompile. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, long story short, that imp imports to alias script that Voitech wrote was really helpful. Uh, at first, I, I ran it. We had some trouble because there were a couple of edge cases with the way that code was written in changelog and kind of the compiler capabilities on the like 1.10 version of Elixir. Mm -hmm. uh, so it was, it was doing really great at converting some things, but other things were kind of getting mangled a little bit. And we go into detail on that when the article and the issue, but yeah, basically uh, once I kind of switched over to the master uh, version of Elixir, so the kind of the dev version, that's kind of got the bleeding edge stuff. Uh, I was able to, and some tips from Voitech helped on this as well. Uh, but basically I kind of updated that script a little bit so that it, uh, it, well, first of all, using the new version of Elixir allowed it to see into those uh, HTML template files within Elixir. So with the kind of the next version of Elixir, the compiler will be able to get more information about functions that are imported or being referenced inside of a, uh, like a .eex file. Right. Your, your template HTML files. templates. Mm-hmm. And uh, so which we, got, which we have a lot of those as well. Yes. Yeah. So missing those would be tragic. And I've learned. I, I used to think that was kind of an overcomplicated way of doing things, but I'm, I've le really learned to love kind of breaking things out into all these separate files. But that's a tangent. So, so uh, after, so with the new version of Elixir, it was able to get catch more of the functions so they could be converted, and then the other. Th kind of uh, problem I ran into with a script was that I had to, uh, because, all right, so I'll back up a little bit. Inside of some of these modules, uh, there's a feature of Elixir where you can pipe uh, the value of one, or uh, yeah, the value that's returned from one function can be piped into the next function. Right. So you can kind of daisy chain uh, a list of functions to transform some data. Uh, typically, you'll see those written out on separate lines, um, but whenever you have just a couple of those or maybe two or three, 
Right. You know, if it's less than 140 characters long total, then it, sometimes it makes sense just to put them all on the same line. Yep. Uh, for the script, though, and for the compiler, the problem was that it would kind of, once you would update the uh, the first function that needed to be uh, updated, then that second second function was in a different place. So it would go on to the next function, start to update it, but all the characters were kind of getting mangled. So I kind of dumbed down the script a little bit, so it just used a like a regular expression find a replace just within that single line of code. So that that solved that problem. Uh, it, it just wound up with a couple of, uh, I think maybe two or three lines where I had to go in and manually correct like a meta tag that was a description. Mm-hmm. So like there was a description function. There was also like an attribute on that tag for descriptions. Right. So it would kind of append the module to both. Yeah, it's like a, it's like a, a namespace conflict where you have a function called description and then you also have the HTML element attribute description. Right. Yeah. So once those were sorted out, and that was kind of the simpler way to get this done without having to wait for, you know, the the compiler updates, you know, later mm. this year. So uh, once I did that, I kind of wrote up uh, what I did, or the problems I ran into, how I got around those, and then uh, Voitech chimed in that, yeah, this was something that they'd already, that they were already aware of, and they've actually been discussing uh, a new feature within Elixir. Uh, I think this applies to the compiler where it will, where you can update the formatting of of a function without depending on like its position within a line of code. Mm. So I think it will go in more to like the AST, which is, that one's still a little bit over my head, but it, it'll go in uh, to the actual structure of the code and start renaming things instead of looking at the text. Right, the plain text in the files. Right. So with all that in place, after all those changes, by the time we got all this down, uh, we went from recompiling 220 files to just needing to recompile five whenever you make a change. So that's a win. A little bit. <laughs> I was hoping <laughs> was to it? get to one file. You know, get it down. Like, 98% was what the uh, final number right. came out cross-module dependency reduction of 98%, which makes me feel like I've been just doing it wrong all these years. But uh, (laughs) what's funny is, so when you first made me aware of the problem, which is, and the, maybe the one of the takeaway for me, so I I try to like find rules or best practices to follow. And so that's why I chimed in. I asked Wojtek and you, well, does this, should I just never use imports then? Because, you know, WTF, like I just, eventually they come back to bite me. Is it just import that's problematic uh, everywhere? And so I just, you know, imports considered uh, harmful or whatever, which isn't the case. But really what it is, is that you, you should use imports with your own code sparingly. So if you are using third-party code and you import that, not really problematic because there's very little need for those files to be recompiled very often right. as you go about developing because you're going to pull them in once, you're going to compile them, you're only really going to recompile them when they, you know, you update your depths or something like that. And so importing other people's code is nice ergonomics, it's compile time stuff, go for it. It's when you go about importing your own code into your own code, which I was doing quite a bit, is when you run into this more often because you're changing those files more often. 
is what he right. said, which I think is a good takeaway for me is, okay, I, that's an easy rule for me to follow. Like I can go ahead and import third party, third party code, but I'm just going to go ahead and alias my own stuff unless it's like my own plugs, which I write once and never going to touch again kind of thing. And with the, with our IDEs now you get tab completion. So, you know, yeah. if you have to alias a, a module name and you're, you know, it's like, um, see the lazy dog run or something, uh, then you all, you only have to type the first couple of characters anyway to get the full name. Yeah. Um, so, so, but yeah, with aliases, you kind of accomplish nearly the same thing without having to worry about all the cross module dependencies. Right. Uh, you, instead of getting the full kind of domain name of that module, you get just the kind of the last section, or you can even kind of give it a custom alias, you know, for a particular module. Which sometimes you have to. So for instance, right. like I, we have changelog.repo, but there's also ecto.repo, I believe. Or there, I have changelog.schema, and there's also ecto.schema perhaps. I forget the details, but I know there's ecto.query, and I may have a query module. And so do I, you know, I have to, if I alias both of those to query, I would have a, a conflict there. So you'd have to give each one like, you know, their own little alias subname. And you can do that with the, Way you go about uh, calling that macro, so not a problem, right. but just a little bit more typing. That's all. Just a little bit, but way I mean, less compiling. That's so what we do all day. So it's not like no, it's not a big deal. <laughs> it's not like having to d- grab a shovel or something. So what's funny is yeah, no doubt. What's funny is how lame I am. So when you first made me aware of this, and Voitek did as well, before you submitted your pull request, I was coding in our repo, and now that I have this knowledge in my hand, like I'm not. I was not going to put in this effort that you put in, so I'm very appreciative of the effort that you put in. I was just going to slowly change them myself over time mm-hmm. as I edited certain sections of the site. Like I would like manually or a find a find and replace inside the file, you know, right? Um, using basic regular expressions or just like select the word and then Command D inside VS Code to like select all the and then you know. So I would just like slowly improve and that's kind of how I write software um, versus like a huge big refactoring which requires a lot of effort like you put in I'm too lazy and lame that I would just like deal with it and I was going to slowly change it so I'm happy that it all got changed at once but that's I'm how glad, I was tackling it right I'm glad that you guys have tests because <laughs> that gave me a little bit more confidence once I started running the script and trying things I could just run the test afterwards and yeah you know, I wasn't clicking through the entire application. I could just run the test, and you know, if, if everything would pass, then I was happy to go ahead and start committing those changes. Right. Uh, and well, yeah, I mean, that's the, really the, the huge benefit. You know, test suites argue for or against like TDD and and testing as you develop out. But when it comes to refactoring and making massive changes, like a test, a comprehensive test suite, it, I would say it's crucial. I might say it's like. Compulsory. Like I don't think I would do it in many cases. In fact, I've inherited rescue projects that don't have test suites, and the clients want changes. And I'm like, look, I can't with confidence make any of these changes because I have mm-hmm. no idea what this is going to affect. And so my first step is I need tests. So you're going to pay me to write some tests, <laughs> and then we can talk about making changes. Um, I think this is good evidence of like you know a complete stranger can clone the repo and make these massive changes with confidence that at right. least, you know, I don't, I don't think we're at 100% coverage. I know we're not at 100% coverage. 
but we're at pretty good coverage enough where you can make these kind of changes with confidence. Yeah. It's especially with a big open source project. Yeah. Like it gives you a lot of confidence. You can, you know, have your, can your CI builds running those tests automatically. And then, you know, people can kind of do whatever they want with the code, but it doesn't make it into your repo if, if it's not passing those tests. So, and I've still got a lot to learn myself about actually writing tests, but yeah, but it was nice that those were already done and I could just kind of check what I was doing against those tests. Yeah, I think a lot of the reticence against test writing is once you start trying to do it, you realize that writing tests can often be harder than writing the actual implementation. Right. And uh, and so it's like, well, it's hard enough to write the code. I also have to write the tests. And then you realize your test, your code is hard to test, which is actually is a nice smell that your API isn't well designed, which is one of the the uh, selling points of TDD, as people will say that that test is your first user of your implementation. And your test will tell you that your implementation is difficult to test, therefore it's difficult to use. And you will actually change your API design to allow your tests to be easily written. I found that to be true sometimes and also false in other cases in my experience, where I feel like sometimes I'm designing my API for the test, but then mm -hmm. I'm not using it that way in my other code. Anyways. That's a tangent as well. But yeah, testing is not easy. And writing good tests uh, takes time and experience. I've got a book around here somewhere, but yeah, I cracked open the property-based testing with uh, proper. Uh, so that one's kind of written for, I, th I think primarily for Erlang, but they do kind of give you Erlang and Elixir code. Uh, yeah. But that one definitely, once I start working on my own Elixir applications or... If I can uh, start working on that at, at my day job, then uh, then yeah, I'll be. I think I think the property based testing makes more sense because you kind of define, kind of like your schema. You're you're providing a bunch of kind of general information about what right. you want from your application and from the modules, and then it will just generate some random test data and then yeah, make sure that you know it's handling things that you couldn't imagine. You know, right? With kind of like a, a random, fuzzer. Right. right. Yeah. I've never actually used property-based testing. I've, I've seen a talk on it, and I've definitely had people tell me about it. Right. Um, I knew it was a thing in Erlang. Yeah, I've never actually given it a shot. I wonder, uh, is there easy access via Elixir to property-based testing? We could like drop them into our repo and If see you how wanted it works. to try it if, if for like the first time, I would probably take a look at the norm package documentation. Okay. Because uh, it's kind of, um, it's a way of, declaring custom types for your uh, application or for a module. And then uh, if you have one of those data generators uh, in your application, then you can, like, you can just tell it to generate some data and it will generate whatever. Like, if you're telling it that this first argument should be a string, then it will generate some random strings and kind of give you a better idea of what's what's going to break your application. Yeah. Sounds like a good subject for a future jam session. Yes. That would be cool. The example that he has in the docs mm -hmm. is like really easy. Like you, it's just one module. You're creating a RGB to hex converter. And uh, so that one you can kind of do like in an afternoon or something and then kind of get a feel for how that particular package works, the problems it solves, and then maybe how to do some property-based testing as well. 
Well, we'd be remiss not to mention that you did also write up this entire experience uh, as a changelog post. So we'll put that in the show notes for those interested. It seems to have resonated pretty well with the elixirists uh, around the <laughs> community, especially on the subreddit. They were quite appreciative of this because I think it's information that a lot of people writing Elixir would want to know. Um, even though there's those existing blog posts, here's an example of putting those into action, how you use the import to alias script, stuff like that. So that's really cool as well. Yeah. I'm glad. <laughs> You're not using Elixir in any sort of day-to-day context though, man. You got to get like a side project or you got to get a, a well, gig or what are you going to do? I So there was, uh, for a while last year, I was working on a project uh, converting something from PHP to Elixir with a Phoenix application and uh, was didn't manage to finish it before I got the new day job. So, gotcha. uh, so I was building up a uh, kind of a e-commerce application, you know, building up users and roles and, and that kind of stuff. So, uh, did a lot of work on that, and uh, yeah, so I've kind of gotten the kind of the bare bones stuff down and gotten, I think, confident with the CRUD operations, the kind of the. Uh, the more backend stuff, the uh, uh, talking with like dis- distributed networking and communication stuff, yeah, I think is kind of the next frontier for me. Uh, and uh, yeah, so I, I've got a couple of ideas on things I'll be working on, but uh, maybe I can talk about those in the future. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, very cool stuff. Well, Owen, thanks so much for getting involved sometimes it's tough to just put yourself out there and take that first step and open an issue or open a pull request and say hey i can pitch a pitch a hand we definitely appreciate it adam told me to tell you thanks from him he's bunkered he's bunkered down not from corona well also from coronavirus but there's also a massive storm in houston right now so he was going to join us but couldn't but he wanted to say thanks to you and uh yeah we appreciate you coming on backstage and sharing your story man it's pretty cool yeah thanks for having me